Alright, turn back to 2 Corinthians chapter number 5. 2 Corinthians chapter number 5. Well, as you all know, here at Christ Fellowship, we are fundamentally committed to expository preaching. We preach verse by verse through books of the Bible. However, I also believe that there are special times in which it is good for the health of the church to take a step back and to consider a very basic, a very principle, and a very intimate look at the gospel of Jesus Christ and all that he has accomplished on behalf of his people. And especially uh, in pastoral ministry, as you hear of stories of the saints that come and speak to you and share their burdens with you and the struggles that they've been going through. And I know that for a number of you, the last several weeks have just been unusually rough. And I want you to know that uh, we as a, as a church and as church members are committed to being as loving and as caring as we possibly can. Oh, but there is one friend who is far more considerate, far more compassionate, and far more understanding than any of us could ever be. And it is he who I desire to preach to you this evening. May we all stop and pause and consider the glory of Christ and his cross. The glory of Christ and his cross. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I'm just going to read one verse. Verse 21. These are the words of God. For he hath made him to be sin. For us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. I want to preach a message tonight that will comfort your heart by highlighting the centrality of God in the work which He has done in your soul. At times when we are troubled, when we face pressure from within and without, Christians need to be reminded that their salvation is not dependent upon their feelings. That the state of their souls is not contingent upon anything that they are bringing to the table. But no matter what opposition you may face from others, no matter what temptations you may experience within yourself, no matter who turns their back on you, no matter the derision that you may receive from friends and even family, Dear Christian, if you have been once redeemed by His blood, Christ will forever hold you fast. As we approach this glorious text, I believe it is fitting for me to begin with an apology. And that apology is this. I could preach this text for decades and only brush the surface of the truth contained in this one verse. We can scarcely begin to fathom All that this verse is saying to us. Christ becoming sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. But may the Lord in the time that we do have tonight illuminate His Word in our hearts. May He encourage His people. Nowhere else in the entire Bible is the truth of the cross more succinctly, plainly, or powerfully stated. Spurgeon rightly said of 2 Corinthians 5.21, 
that this is the whole gospel in one verse. This verse is Paul's John 3.16. This verse highlights the dual transaction that took place as the spotless Son of God became the substitute of wretched sinners. The worst about us was given to Him. And the best about Him was given to us. There was a removal of a negative from us and an addition of a positive from Him. This verse answers the question of how God can be both just and the justifier of His people. The truth of this verse is the main hinge upon which the door of salvation swings. This verse is not subsidiary in importance. It is primary in importance. If verse 21 describes something that God has done in your life, then you may be assured that you are saved and secure in His presence. But if you are not a contracting party in this divine transaction, then you are still in your sins and you do not know God. This is serious business when we approach this text. This is a matter of life or death. Whether or not verse 21 is a reality in your life will determine whether you go to heaven or hell when you die. And as I've admonished before, as we work through such passages of Scripture, may we not just examine them as theological concepts or literary masterpieces, but may we read the Bible introspectively and ask the Lord to reveal to us, are these things true of you? Are these things true of me? I remember I was preaching at a conference earlier, I believe it was either this year or last, and there was a woman who had come to that particular conference And she had been burdened for the salvation of her teenage children. And she had been praying for their souls. And the whole church knew about it. We knew about it. She shared this request. She would come up to the speakers of that conference and she would tell us, Brother, would you please be in prayer for my children? I'm very concerned for their souls. And of course, I said, yes, sister, I will be praying for that and keep that in mind as I am ministering the word. And as I spoke at that conference, as I preached the Word of God there in Oklahoma, her daughter was seemingly unmoved and unaffected by the ministry of the Word. But I watched as the Spirit of God began to break this mother, began to humble this mother, began to rend her heart asunder. And at the conclusion of that service, the woman was made aware and then professed later to the congregation that while she was burdened for the salvation of her children, she was unaware of the deadly state of her own soul. And God in mercy and grace was pleased to convert her in that service. And the glorious thing about that story is that after I left and came back home and I called the pastor about a week and a half later, to follow up. And I said, how is this dear sister that the Lord saved in your conference a week or so ago? He said, well, brother, she is doing wonderful. And the blessing doesn't stop there because the following Lord's Day, God saved her daughter. 
when they were baptized together. And so I say that to tell you that as we are considering such a glorious portion of God's Word, do not merely think, oh yes, this is something I know already. Oh yes, this is something that I uh, believed already. Uh, this, this is something that someone else needs, but not me. No, understand, whether you are lost or saved, this is applicable to the state of your soul tonight. And if you believe this, if, if you are trusting in this, then as it is preached, rejoice and fresh and anew. And glorify God for what He has done in your heart. And consider perhaps a, another detail of all that the Lord has been pleased to write in your own heart and soul. I want you to see three things about this text. Very simple outline. The first thing I want you to see about this verse is the initiative of the Father. The initiative of the Father. Notice how the verse begins. Paul says, for he hath made, for he hath made. This first he is no doubt a reference to God the Father. It is God the Father who is the saving initiator. It is God the Father who is the originator of our redemption. We would never be able to save ourselves. You could give a thousand men a thousand years And they would try to devise a thousand ways, but none of them would ever successfully bring them to God. We could never form a pathway to go to Him. Therefore, He came to us. I want you to understand, salvation is God's plan. It is not man's plan. As Jonathan Edwards rightly said, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. And in the salvation of sinners, it is ultimately God the Father who acts. In theological terms, the Latin phrase is used describing the Father. He is actus simplicius. He is simply action. He is not passive. He depends upon no one. And there is no force outside of Him that compels Him. In the plan of salvation, it is us who are entirely passive. In the execution of salvation, it is even the Son who is passive in His obedience upon the cross. But it must be God who takes the initiative because only God can accomplish this work. Only God could lift our sins off of us and place them on Christ and take the righteousness of Christ and offer it to us. All of the factors of our redemption came to pass in accordance with the Father's plan. It is the Father that led His Son to Calvary. Jesus did not go to the cross because the Jews betrayed Him, though they did. Jesus did not go to the cross because the Romans persecuted Him, though they did. Jesus went to the cross to do the will of the Father who sent Him. Therefore, if you are lost and in your sins, it is to God and God only that you must go. Cry out to Him. For only He can save you. And Christian, if you are struggling in sin, if you are hitting a roadblock in your Christian walk, it is to God that you must go. For only He, the one who originated and orchestrated your salvation, only He can supply the grace to lead you through. I want you to see the initiative of the Father. But secondly, I want you to see the interposition 
of the Son. The interposition of the Son. The word interpose literally means to put yourself in the way of. I know that that there will be several that will understand this analogy. If you are on the battlefield and you see the enemy is coming to attack and you place yourself in front of the fire in order to protect others and you throw yourself on the grenade in order to save others, you are interposing your own body and life for the benefit of another. May we consider the interposition of the Son. This verse says, For He, God the Father, hath made Him. And the Him is decidedly distinct from the He. We are referring to two different persons. The Him refers not to God the Father, but to God the Son. When the Father formulated the plan of redemption, He knew in His perfect wisdom that no one but His own Son was suited and qualified to carry out His will. In the eternal council, God the Father determined to save a people for His own name. But in order to save, there needed to be a Savior. And none of the angelic beings in all of their glory were qualified. There was only one who was fit to do the work of the Father. There was only one that could satisfy the Father's desires as the Father in heaven looked out upon the people that He desired to save. Only God the Son could have stepped up and fulfilled that role. Beloved, I declare unto you that that is exactly what He did. God the Son stood up from off the throne at the right hand of God and He said, Father, I will go. I will veil myself in human flesh. I will subject myself to the temptations of men. I will submit to the cruel mockings and shame and reproach and derision of sinners. And I will live a righteous life in the midst of of a sin-cursed earth, and I will go to the cross of Calvary, and I will give my life up on the cross. Jesus came to earth volitionally, of His own will. No one took His life from Him. He laid it down and offered it of Himself for us. For He hath made Him who knew no sin. Who knew no sin. This is a unique qualifier that can only be given to Jesus Christ. He alone is absolutely holy. He alone is infinitely pure. He alone is completely innocent. He alone is entirely sinless. He alone is the only one to ever be born of a woman, yet without sin. He alone is qualified to be our sinless substitute. Brothers and sisters, this one characteristic eliminates the possibility of any other Savior. In order for you to be saved before God, you must first find sinlessness. Sinlessness. And you will not be able to produce it in and of yourself, and you will not be able to find it anywhere else except for the person of Jesus Christ. Salvation from sin required a sinless Savior, and Jesus is the only one who qualifies. Now, it is hard for us to grasp the weight of such a statement. 
who knew no sin. I believe we can understand it intellectually, but to feel it and to apprehend it is quite another thing. Because unlike Jesus, brothers and sisters, all we have ever known is sin. Sin has long been our friend and our acquaintance. We were conceived in sin. We sinned before we were even conscious of our sins. And when we became conscious of our sins, we loved them and continued in them. And up until the time of conversion, sin was all you ever knew. And for some of you, perhaps sin is all you still know. As a society, we embrace sin. As a culture, we relish in sin. And sadly, even as Christians, we have become numb and desynthesized to sin. So many of you, perhaps you work in a secular environment. Perhaps you go to school in a secular academia environment. And you are the witness of sins and blasphemies and iniquities on a daily basis. And you are so inundated with them that you are desynthesized to them. When an unbeliever mocks and blasphemes the name of God, it does not offend your soul. Your heart does not break. When an unbeliever puts a wicked thing before your eyes, you are not appalled and astonished. Because sin is so present before our lives, we do not even realize the effect that it has upon our own conscience. Yet, brothers and sisters, it is not so with Christ. He was never corrupted by sin. The dark stains of sin could not place their blemish on His radiant purity. Consider the many temptations that you face on a daily basis. Consider how often you give in to them. Consider how little it takes for you to succumb to sinful desires. How many times have you put your best foot forward? Have you determined within yourself not to sin? And yet you find yourself without the power to abstain from that which you swore you would never do. Think of these things and then consider that our Lord Jesus underwent every temptation that you have ever faced and yet He came through with a perfect record. That Jesus Christ never even felt guilt, remorse, or regret for anything He ever did. Consider your thought life. Consider how you struggle to keep a clean mind. Consider how some of you, even during the preaching of the gospel, have thought sinful thoughts and have had carnal distractions. And then realize that the mind of Christ was perpetually set upon things that were pure and lovely. Again, we can read these words. We can somewhat understand the concept, but we will never ascertain the entirety of this monumental truth. Jesus Christ knew no sin. Now you say, Pastor, I thought you said you were going to encourage us, and this isn't very encouraging to think about how wicked I am in the eyes of God. Well, brothers and sisters, you will not understand how sweet the good news is until you first taste of just how sour and ugly the bad news is. And the bad news is that you have failed to keep the law of God, that you have transgressed the holiness of God, that you have disobeyed the Word of God, that you have not done for a minute what Jesus did for 33 and a half years. And if that condemns you, I would tell you this, brothers and sisters, the deeper your condemnation and conviction goes, the higher Christ will take you. 
as you look upon the glory and the grandeur and the greatness of all that He is and all that He did, may you be lifted that much higher in light of where the conviction of the Spirit has taken you. May you rest not in your good works, but in what Christ has done. May you trust not in your broken record, but in His perfect record. And may your disobedience no longer condemn you. May your sins no longer burden you. May your iniquities no longer make you feel guilt-ridden and sore when you understand that Christ has abolished the sins that were contained against you and that you are free from condemnation and that you have been liberated from the bondage of iniquity, that you are no longer a slave to sin, that you are no longer under its power, that it does no longer have dominion over you, that it can no longer lay any charge or uh, accusation against you, that you will one day stand before the Holy God and when He asks why you should have acceptance before Him, you will not have to look for anything that you have ever done but you will be able to say by the merits of Christ who knew no sin, I am accepted in the beloved. Jesus Christ knew no sin. And brothers and sisters, if that does not comfort your heart, nothing will. We've seen the initiative of the Father, the interposition of the Son, but now for the remainder of our time, I want us to consider the imputations of sin and righteousness. The imputations of sin and righteousness. You see, I have, I have preached to you what God has done. The Father's eternal plan. His means of reconciling sinners unto Himself. I've preached unto you the interposition of the Son, the full accomplishment of Christ. But now what I want to do is I want to take a step back and I want us to consider how these things were accomplished. How is it that sinful men and women can be made right with God on the basis of something a Jewish carpenter did 2,000 years ago. The imputations of sin and righteousness. Well, first of all, what is this big long word, imputation? What does it mean? To impute something is to accredit to one party's account something which they do not possess, on the basis of another who does possess it. Mother, father, when your son or daughter comes to you and asks you for money, or husband, when your wife comes to you and asks you for money, what she is asking, what what they are asking is, Dad, husband, would you please impute X amount of dollars to my account because I do not have it And you do. And they are trusting in your mercy and grace to be so kind as to give them that money that they are asking for. There's some people in this room that understand exactly what I'm talking about. To impute is to accredit to one party's account something which they do not possess on the basis of another who does possess it. Imputation denotes a legal and binding transaction. And I want you to understand, on the cross of Calvary, there are three parties in this transaction. There is God the Father, there is Jesus Christ, and then there are sinful men and women. And there are two imputations taking place in this verse, in verse 21. 
One imputation is that of sin, and one imputation is that of righteousness. And both of these imputations are indispensable and absolutely necessary for your salvation. See, your lost condition can be summed up with two problems. One, you are not righteous, and two, you are sinful. It is not just that you don't possess a perfect obedience, it is that you possess the opposite of that. And it is not just that you are disobedient, but it is that you lack that which you need, which is a perfect righteousness. Your problem is twofold. Conversely, God is not sinful, and He is righteous. And therefore, in this present state, you and God are mutually exclusive. You are inherently incompatible. And if you are to ever be fit for His presence, one of you will have to fundamentally change a newsflash. It won't be God. See, that is the world's method of salvation. Because they cannot find a pathway to rise up and reach the perfect holiness of God, they simply devise a God that is a sinner just like them. A God that is okay with their sins. The Bible gives us no liberty to do any such heinous thing. So how does God remedy this fractured relationship between Himself and His people? He does it in a way that preserves His justice, exalts His mercy, and glorifies His grace. And that way is imputation. So let us consider these two imputations. The first one, the imputation of our sin to Christ. For He hath made Him who knew no sin, watch this, to be sin for us. To be sin for us. Now, what this does not mean is that Jesus became a sinner. Even on the cross, He was personally innocent, yet forensically guilty. He was actually holy, yet He was declared sinful. On the cross, the Father transferred to Jesus all the sins of all those who would ever believe. And this is the only way that salvation could be possible. God did not save you by dismissing your sins. God did not save you by sweeping your sins under the rug. God did not just merely forget your sins. God saved you by exploiting your sins, by demonstrating your sins to the world, by putting your sins on display upon the cross of Calvary in the person of Jesus Christ and by pouring out the fierceness of of His wrath upon your sins in Christ. The wages of sin is death and that wage must be paid. And every sin that has ever been committed must receive its just recompense, death. Because sin is cosmic treason against an eternal God, this death must also be eternal. And your sins are either paid for by the death of Jesus Christ, who is the eternal Son of God, or you will spend an eternity in hell paying for your sins. Jesus had to be made sin because He had no sins of His own. The Greek literally renders this phrase, For Him who knew not sin, for us sin He made. How beautiful is the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
God is not a cold, harsh taskmaster, brothers and sisters. God is the one who became sin for you. The for us in this verse refers to the benefactors of this transaction. And understand that there's no disconnect. It is the same us. It is those who believe in Christ. The sin into which Jesus was made was not hypothetical sin. Do you understand that? God was not punishing Jesus on the cross for made up sins or potential sins or possible sins. He was punishing Jesus on the cross for actual sins, actual transgressions, actual iniquities that you committed. That you committed. May you consider this the next time you find yourself tempted to sin. Understand that the sins that you commit are the very reason that our Lord Jesus was crucified on the cross. And that you all, and I as well, carry around the hammer and the nails that hung our Lord upon that old rugged tree. All of our sin, all of our wrongdoing, all of our law-breaking was given to Jesus Christ. All of our hating, all of our lying, all of our lusting, all of our coveting, all of our stealing. Every time we took God's name in vain, every time we thought an impure thought, every time we neglected to obey God, Christ bore the full weight of our sins on that cross. As our sins were imputed to Him, He subsequently suffered in our place. He experienced the wrath of God the desolation of God, the separation from God, the fury of God. He received the judgment, the condemnation, the oppression, the shame, the reproach, the agony that we deserved. Recall the story of Genesis 22. Do you remember what happened there as Abraham took his only son Isaac up to Mount Moriah? And as they were going up that mountain, Isaac said to his father, I see the wood and I see the knife. I see everything that we need, but where is the lamb? And as they got to Calvary's cross, or as they got to Mount Moriah, which would 2,000 years later be Calvary's cross, as Abraham put his knife in the air, and was about to assassinate and sacrifice his own son on the cross of Calvary. It was as if God took the knife out of Abraham's hand and drove it through the heart of his only begotten son on our behalf. That is what God has done for his people. Jesus Christ became sin for us. We, we considered last Wednesday in our prayer meeting that Jesus Christ became accursed on our behalf. He suffered the, the penalty of violating the covenant of works with Adam and, and He became accursed on our behalf. What does it mean to be cursed of God? What does it mean to be, to be separated from that holy and blessed eternal communion with God? I want you to turn to Deuteronomy 28. Hold your place in 2 Corinthians. And I'm asking you to turn here because I want you to see what it means to be accursed by God. 
Deuteronomy 28 and verse 16. The Bible says, Cursed shalt thou be in the city. Cursed shalt thou be in the field. Cursed shall be thy basket and thy store. Cursed shall be the fruit of thy body and the fruit of thy land, and the increase of thy kind, and the flocks of thy sheep. Cursed shalt thou be when thou comest in. Cursed shalt thou be when thou goest out. The Lord shall send upon thee cursing, vexation, rebuke, in all that thou settest thine hand unto for to do, until thou be destroyed, and until thou perish quickly, because of the wickedness of thy doings, whereby thou hast forsaken me." Brothers and sisters, that is what it means to be accursed by God. You say, that is what we all deserve to hear. Yes, it is what we all deserve to hear. But those of us in Christ will never hear that. For the Lord Jesus heard that in our place on Calvary's cross. God the Father looked at His Son and He cursed Him on the cross. And He poured out His wrath upon Him. And He killed His only begotten Son that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him, that we might be free from holy justice. We cannot begin to comprehend the weight of what transpired as the beloved Son of God, who is infinitely holy, eternally pure, perfectly righteous, was made to be vile and corrupt and was damned by His heavenly Father. I fear that some of you think that God will somehow overlook your sins. You do not believe that your sins are really that big of a deal. Oh, but I want you to understand, dear friend, that God hates sin so much that He killed His own Son. Do you really think that a God who would not spare the life of His own Son will turn a blind eye to the sins that you have committed? Oh no, your sins will be dealt with. And I pray that they were dealt with in Christ on the cross, lest you have to deal with them on the last day. That is the imputation of our sin to the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the accrediting to Christ the iniquities that believers have committed. But that is only half of the story. There is yet another imputation. The second imputation is the imputation of Christ's righteousness to us. Notice how the verse concludes. He was made sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. That we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Because of the imputation of our sin to Christ and the sacrifice that Jesus made for us, The wrath of God was truly satisfied. And we are no longer viewed as sinners before God. Oh no, but we are innocent before Him. But in order to restore our fellowship with God, there must be more than just the removal of sin and debt. The removal of sin brings us back to zero. But you can't go to heaven with zero. Not only must your sin be removed, the righteousness of God must be given. And God requires holiness and purity to enter into His presence. But what God requires, He also supplies. And the very same way in which Jesus became sin is the way in which you and I become righteous via imputation. 
God looked on Jesus on the cross as if He had lived your life so that He can now look upon you as if you have lived the life of Christ. God looked at Jesus on the cross and He saw us and now He looks upon us and He sees Jesus. And the righteousness that we must possess to be accepted by God is given to us by God on the merits of Christ's work on the cross and we receive it by faith alone. This is the doctrine of justification by imputation. And it is the high point of the gospel message. Our rags for His riches. Our poverty for His wealth. Our guilt for His innocence. And Jesus as our literal substitute actually secured our righteousness before God. We cannot earn it. We cannot contribute to it. We cannot improve upon it. And if you desire this righteousness... You must take it with empty hands. You must say, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. We do not receive this justifying righteousness progressively. No, but it is given to us immediately and in whole. Jesus does not hold back when he gives the fullness of himself to his people. The entirety of his treasures, the vastness of his estate, they are received in the self-same moment that you place your trust in him. In the instance that you look upon Christ dying for you on the cross with the eye of repentant faith, all of your sins are straightway imputed to him. And all of his righteousness is given to you. Beloved, do you see how personal, how personal the work on the cross was? Jesus did not go to the cross to die for hypothetical sinners. Jesus died for you. You were on His mind as He marched to Jerusalem. As His hands were nailed to the cross. As He was suspended between heaven and earth. He saw your face. He saw your life. He saw everything that you had ever done. And He gladly gave His life to save you. See, God saw the best about you, and then he died for it. This is the gospel. This is the message of the cross. As the life's blood flowed from his body, he was not wondering, well, I wonder who will be saved. As he breathed his dying breath, he was not saying, well, I sure hope so-and-so will be a Christian one day. No, he knew with full certainty, all that his death would accomplish. And I believe that because of the infinite mind of Jehovah God, he was even able to see this room here tonight, 2,021 years later, he was able to see those who are sitting, those who are believing. He knows the state of your soul. He knows the condition of your heart. And if you are one of His, it is not by mere accident. It is not by happenstance. It is not by chance. It is because your name was graven upon the depths of His heart as He died on the cross. He loved you while you were yet a sinner. And He died for you before you were ever born. So that in due time, you would have the ability to repent of your sins and believe upon Him. 
because of the glorious imputations of the gospel. Consider what this text is affording to you, brothers and sisters. If you have come here lost in your sins, hopeless, with nothing, condemned, you can but in a moment turn to Christ and look upon Him and leave with the full riches of heaven. You may have come under wrath, but you may leave under grace. You may have come as an enemy of God, but you may leave as His child. Dear Christian, perhaps your mind of late has has not been thinking much on these grand things. And if you spend much time not considering the truth of the cross of Christ, even as a believer, you will find yourself frustrated and worried and anxious. And so I call you tonight to turn back and to remember what it was that first raptured your soul into the faith. Remember what it was like to first look upon the dying Lamb of God as He bled and died and suffered for His people. If you're beginning to feel cold, if you are beginning to feel lifeless, if you are beginning to feel as if the fervor and the zeal that you once had to serve God is beginning to dissipate, I tell you that there is not a book that you need to read. There is not a video that you need to watch. There is not a 12-step discipleship plan that you need to engage in. No, friend, you need to return back to the Calvary's cross. You need to bow your knees before the Savior of men and women. How fearful it is to think that there are those who hear the gospel and though knowing what Christ has done for sinners, they reject it and they go on in unbelief. But let me say to you, if you reject Christ now, you must purposefully reject Him. You must make a deliberate choice to keep your sins and refuse His righteousness. Christian, if you uh, of late have been trusting more and more in your own works and your own ability and your own uh, failing attempts to secure sanctification, as I preach to you the free grace that is offered to sinners and saints alike, if you go on trying to do it your own way, you must do so conscientiously and willfully. But I ask, how will you answer God on that day? And give an account for making such a wretched decision. God has done for us what we could never do in a trillion lifetimes. God has made full provision for the salvation of any sinner who comes to Him by faith. And I can declare with the full authority of heaven, a Savior has died, and all who believe upon Him shall be saved. Do you sense your great need of having your sins taken from you? Has God made you aware of how desperately you need His righteousness? Oh, then I urge you, as the hymn writer has written, Behold the man upon the cross, your sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed you hear your mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was your sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought you life. Know that it is finished. This call is simple. Come unto Christ. Come unto Christ and receive the glorious pardon and the steadfast assurance that the cross provides. The glorious message of the cross is this, that Christ has died not merely to make salvation possible, but to effectively save sinners. And the salvation that Christ has merited in His own life and death is an eternal justifying righteousness 
that shall never be rescinded and shall never be voided. If you are Christ's, you are his eternally. No man, and that includes yourself, will ever pluck you out of his hand. So may God save sinners here tonight for the praise of his glorious grace. May he encourage his saints and may we, afresh and anew, consecrate our hearts and our lives unto him. May he be glorified that Christ may be honored. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name for the goodness that you have manifested to us tonight through the message of the cross, the glorious message of the cross. May you comfort your people here tonight that are struggling, that are frustrated, that are burdened. May you remind us that it is all in Jesus with whom we find assurance and trust. Oh God, glorify your Son in this assembly. Help us to remain faithful unto thee. For it's in thy name that we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.